Well, it's so good to be with you. Uh, last week, I was ministering at a church in Rochester, and uh, my friend Jonathan Valletta uh, really shared such a wonderful teaching on what life will be like in the new heavens and the new earth, so I just want to say thank you to him for doing that. But I'm glad to be home. I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that it's September. I love September. September is my favorite month, not just because football's back, uh, but September is my favorite month because my favorite season is coming back. I live for fall. I love fall, and I'm so excited to be here. And, and, and growing up uh, in Syracuse, the singular event that really signifies to most people the end of the summer is the New York State Fair, right? When the fair is happening, you know summer is just about over. And I loved, I love the fair. We're a very divided house when it comes to the fair. I, I'd go to the fair every day. My wife would be happy to never go to the fair again. And so my job every year is to find one thing she actually wants to eat there to motivate her to go. And it used to be this food truck called Mr. Sticky's, which made these delicious cinnamon buns. But one of the many things that COVID stole from us was Mr. Sticky's. And he's no longer at the fair. And I'm thinking, how am I going to get my wife to the fair? And then my friend told me about Peachy's Baking Company food truck. And all they make are these massive glazed donuts. And then they put coconut custard on it and whipped cream and toasted coconut. And like, my wife loves donuts and she loves coconut. I was thinking, this is it. So I got my family to the fair, and I was like, I got to get her to Peachy's, otherwise we're going to leave soon. I got to get her there. I got to convince her that this is a good place to be. And so I walked past so many other things I wanted to eat looking for peaches. I'm walking past, I mean, the peppers and the onions and the sausages smell amazing. I walk past the milk bar where the cold milk is. I walk past Pizza Frida. I walk past the bacon bomb. I'm leaving all of these things behind me because I just want to get to peaches so I can get this donut. And we got there. Here's a picture of the donut. Um, and I did let my wife eat some of it. Uh, <laughs> and it was phenomenal. It was delicious. And we learned it was worth leaving other, leaving other things behind us to get to it. Life is a journey of leaving things behind. We're always leaving things behind us. This past week, as kids went to school, they left behind summer vacation. They left behind sleeping in, right? Uh, my, my oldest daughter left behind middle school. She had her first day in high school. Pray for her. Pray for us. Our, young, our middle daughter left behind elementary school. She had her first day in middle school, her first day in the public school system. It was a, it was a week of leaving things behind. If you think about your life, you've left things behind you, haven't you? You've left seasons of life behind you. You've left, hopefully, certain attitudes and behaviors that used to slow you down. You've left some people behind you, friendships and relationships, maybe some baggage, maybe some issues. Maybe there's some things you believed 10 years ago that you actually don't believe today. And if at any point in your life you look behind you, you should see a, a sort of a, a long line of things that you left behind you. But the question that we all have to pause and ask ourselves every now and then is this. Am I leaving the right things behind me? Am I leaving the right things behind me? And this morning, our big idea as we start this series, Leave Your Nets, is that disciples, those who follow Jesus, are leavers. They're always leaving things behind them. And we're going to go to the passage in Matthew 4 where we get the title of our series, Leave Your Nets From. Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to read to you verses 13 through 22. And it says, And leaving Nazareth, which was Jesus where he was raised, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. 
the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee one day, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. These men were decisive. In a moment, they left so much behind to follow Jesus. And this morning, I want us to see that if we're going to be disciples, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be leavers, there are three things that we need to leave behind us. And the first thing that we have to leave behind us is we have to leave the worst of you. You have to leave the worst of you. Um, on vacation, we visited another church, and during that sermon, I learned, I didn't know this, that the Oxford Junior Dictionary had recently removed a bunch of words from its dictionary because they said it was, they were no longer, uh, they had fallen out of use with younger generations. The young people just don't use these words anymore. And two of the words that they removed were sin and disciple. So in the Oxford Junior Dictionary, no longer will you find the word sin because it's fallen out of use with the younger generation or the word disciple. Now, before you feel like that's an explicit attack on Christianity, they also removed words like dandelion and gerbil and goldfish. So I don't know what they were thinking, generally speaking, but it does say something to the way our world thinks about sin. It's not an issue for us anymore. We've sort of evolved beyond talking about this matter of sin because sin indicates that there's some sort of standard of right and wrong outside of ourselves, and surely we're beyond that. Surely that's not where we are anymore. And even in the church, there is a temptation to tweak and twist Jesus, who he was, his teachings, and his life, to make him who we really would like him to be. Often we are trying to tame Jesus, and we kind of emphasize the things that are, many things that were wonderful about him. So you say, well, Jesus came really just to love people, just to love the losers of society and to hang out with those that nobody else hung out with and to help poor people and to, and to heal people and to spread a good ethic. This is how you should treat each other and encourage good morals. And yes, Jesus did all of those things, and we should be thankful for that, but none of those things will get you killed. Jesus didn't just come doing those things. Jesus came with a radically offensive message then and now, and we read it in the text. Jesus came saying, repent. The first word of his teaching was repent. Repentance is probably not in the Oxford Junior Dictionary either. It's not a word that we use very often. But repentance is so much more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's so much more than just feeling bad about what you've done. Repentance is infinitely more than you trying to make restoration for what you've done. You trying to somehow uh, make things right is actually a, 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 the opposite in some ways of repentance. Repentance is a, indicates in, in the original language a 180-degree uh, turn. You are facing and heading in one direction, and when you repent, you turn, and you are now headed in the other direction. Repentance. It speaks of real observable change. 
If somebody's walking one way and they turn around and start walking the other way, you can see that. You can notice it. It's noticeable. And as Christians, repenting is often the daily process of leaving behind us the worst of who we are, the worst of us. Now, that, that phrase, the worst of you, is actually, that phrase is a problem for some people. Oh, you shouldn't say people are bad. People are generally good. There's just some bad people, but generally speaking, people are good. And one of the things that I've been kind of convinced of increasingly in the Christian circles is that we lack some level of understanding of basic foundational building blocks of a Christian worldview. What, how does a Christian actually view the world? And the challenge is, is that, like, you know, when you go to school, uh, when you're in elementary school, you learn the basic building blocks of math, addition and subtraction, and then you step up to division and, or multiplication, division, so that someday you can do advanced algebra. But if you don't have the foundations, you're never going to succeed at the advanced levels. And I feel like we have a Christian community often that are trying to deal with advanced algebra issues in our society, and we don't know how to add. We don't know how to subtract. We don't have the basic foundations of a Christian worldview. So I want to share two. I'm actually com- trying to comprise a list of what I, what I believe to be those views so we can teach on it at some point. But here's two of them that I think will help us with this point. One of the basic foundations of a Christian worldview is that we were created to bear God's image. We were created in his image. And why that's so important is that means, listen, that means that you've never met a human that isn't an image bearer of God, which means every human being has inherent dignity, value, and worth apart from anything that they can add to it, apart from their ability to contribute to society, apart from their physical abilities, their mental abilities, we believe that they have inherent dignity, value, and worth because they are created in the image of God. So regardless of even what their choices that they've made, what they've done and what they haven't done, you're never going to interact with a person in, in fa- face-to-face or online. You're never going to disagree with a person. You're never going to get angry at a person. You're never going to get frustrated at a person that doesn't bear the image of God. And that is a foundational view to the Christian uh, worldview. But here's the second one. Another foundational building block of a Christian worldview is that we are under a curse. That because of our sin and our rebellion against God, there is now a curse upon not just humankind, but upon all of creation. Now the curse, uh, Jesus took the curse upon himself, upon the cross, but we still are living in the tension between that and when everything will be made new, which is what our whole last series was about. So there is a brokenness about the way you and I bear God's image. Here's what it means. None of us bear his image the way that we were created to or the way that we should. Only Jesus Christ was the perfect image bearer. Jesus came and he perfectly bared the image of God the Father. He is the visible representation of the invisible God, but but the rest of us don't. And someday we will see Jesus and we will be like Jesus and we will bear God's image perfectly, but now we don't. So what do we do? We gotta hold those two things together. We're all image bearers but it's all affected by a curse, which means there is a worse to each of us. And it doesn't in any way take away from our value and our worth, but it is a truth that Christians face up to. And the Bible calls it our sin nature. In other words, you're not, uh, you don't sin. I'm sorry, let me say this right. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. That's what the scripture teaches. We have a sin nature. We're born with a sin nature. If you don't think so, volunteer next Sunday morning for the nursery. You will find that kids are born with a sin nature. 
And so we, don't, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. One of my favorite preachers uh, says it this way. He's a little tongue-in-cheek. But he says, most of us don't grow up as Hitler or Ivan the Terrible, but it's, but it's not for a lack of talent. <laughs> it's in us. Have you heard the saying, but for the grace of God, there go I? There are things about us that we have to be honest about. We can't just keep pretending, now nah, we're basically good. We're, the scriptures say we're not basically good. Yes, we're valuable and nothing will change that. Yes, we bear God's image and nothing will change that. But there is a reality that sin brings into our life. And there are things about each of us, the worst things about each of us, that we need to leave behind. These are obvious, glaring sins against God and against others. These are the things in your life that you know. I mean, I don't have to list them for you because you know what they are. The things that are destroying your relationships, the things that are destroying your soul, the things that are causing you to do things that you later wish you hadn't done, these are the worst of us, the things that we have to leave behind. I want to I just throw out the word, when I was thinking about this, how do I summarize this? I, I want to talk just for a minute about the word addiction. Because I think, honestly, addiction often indicates the things that sometimes are worst about us. And I know when you hear the word addiction, you immediately think of a couple different types of addiction, maybe addiction to alcohol or to drugs. But, you know, we can be addicted to so many things. We can be addicted to attention. We can be addicted to the Internet. We can be addicted to sports. We can be addicted to food. We can be a, a, a addicted to shopping. We can be addicted to activity, productivity. And addiction is anything that you, this is how I'm defining it. Addiction is anything that you continually and consistently turn to, run to, go to for one of two reasons. One, to either feel something or to feel nothing. Addiction is anything that you consistently and continually turn to, either in the pursuit of, I mean, I just want to feel something. I want to feel alive. I want to feel good. I want to feel powerful. I want to feel meaningful. Or I just want to feel nothing. I just want to numb myself with Netflix. I just want to, uh, you know, kind of drown myself in this substance. And I, I want to warn us that our addictions have the power to ruin our lives, ruin our souls, ruin our families, ruin our relationships. And I think all of us need to pause and just think, what is the thing in my life that I most consistently and continually turn to um, on a tough day to feel something uh, or on a tough day to feel nothing? And I think if we were honest, all of us have an addiction in our life, something, I'm not saying it's a full-blown addiction, but something that you have a tendency to keep turning to and turning to and turning to. And eventually those things become the absolute worst things about us. And one of the things that I'm certain of when it comes to leaving behind our worst things is that you can't do it on your own and you can't do it in your own strength. Never. You cannot leave these things. Listen, if, if we can make ourselves, if we could get rid of the worst things about ourselves on our own and in our own strength, we'd be a greater group of people right now. <laughs> we, I would have done it a long time ago. You would have done it a long time ago. You'll never do it on your own. You'll never do it in your own strength. And when we follow the lives of Peter, John, and uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, as you, if you read through the rest of the Gospels, it's so evident in their lives. They were never going to get free from their pride and their arrogance and their insecurities and their addictions if they didn't get into community with Jesus and the other disciples. And if they didn't learn to rely upon the strength of Jesus instead of their own strength. And some of you love Jesus very much and you're very determined to fix yourself, but you're trying to do it on your own and in your own strength and you'll never get there. You will find yourself racked with guilt 
you will find yourself unsure of your salvation. You will find yourself wondering if you've done enough. You'll find yourself hoping people don't find things out about you. And the only real chance for leaving behind the worst things about us is to get into community and to be in Christ. Leave the worst of you. Second thing, we have to not just leave the worst of you, you have to leave the best of you. They leave behind their fishing nets, their boat, and their father. One of the commentaries I was reading this week said that fish, and I didn't know this actually, I always kind of thought fishermen were poor, but fishermen actually had more income than the average people in Galilee. And the mention of a boat in verse 21 indicates that James and John were probably middle or upper middle class status. They, they had actually socioeconomic standing. They had their own boat. And so when they left, I always kind of thought, well, of course they left fishing. They weren't making any money. It was like the worst job around. No, they were doing just fine. They were living like many of us were living comfortably, maybe paycheck to paycheck, but still relatively comfortably they were living as middle class, upper middle class people, but they walked away from it all. The, the social economic uh, security that they had worked for and that they inherited through their father's uh, skills, they walked away from it. And then leaving their father in this society, in this time, I mean, this was a big deal. Leaving your father and your family business Business, this sort of abandonment would bring dishonor in the community. And yet they left the boats, the nets, the father, and they followed after Jesus. But Jesus didn't just say repent in this passage. He said repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance is always not just turning from bad behavior to good behavior. Repentance is turning from a false kingdom to the true kingdom. Repentance is turning from all of my energy, emotions, and efforts going to building this kingdom to being set aside for God's kingdom. And think about this. Where do your efforts, energy, and emotions, where do they go most easily? Where do you need the least amount of convincing to give your efforts, emotion, and energy towards? What gets you riled up the quickest? What gets you passionate the fastest? What makes you ready to give everything you have for a cause or for a situation or in pursuit of something? Whatever your efforts, energies, and emotions go to most, most easily, most readily, you ask the least amount of questions about it, that is actually your kingdom. That's the kingdom that you're building. That's where you give your best. Your best goes to the kingdom that you're building and your identity becomes attached to that kingdom and it's the very best that you have to give. And to follow Jesus, we have to not just leave behind the worst of us, we have to leave behind the best of us, which means nothing can have our hearts. We cannot place our identity in. We cannot build any kingdom other than his. In the Wall Street Journal this week, there was an interview with Pastor Tim Keller, and he said this, which is really a summary of much of his teaching. Unless you love God the most, you will turn your children or your spouse or your job into a God or a kind of God that you will expect to completely fulfill you. So much of the disappointment in our lives is because we look to people and to things to do for us what Christ alone can do for us. And if you make your children, your spouse, your job, that list can go on and on, but those are the three that he mentioned. If, if, you, if you love them most, if that's where your energy, emotions, and efforts most easily and readily go. And let's be honest, I'm, a, I'm, I'm married, I have kids. I mean, I get this challenge. Like, you want the best for people. And that's the challenge. The best things in your life can become the most dangerous things in your life. 
Because when you build your identity around those things and you build that kingdom and you expect them to completely fulfill you, Keller goes on to say, this is a recipe for dissatisfaction. And it often alienates those we love by burdening them with unreasonable expectations. So one, it doesn't work. And two, it actually works against the relationships that you're trying to build. Often the biggest threats to being leavers are the things that we're best at, the things that we're known for. There's such a danger in finding your identity in anything other than I belong to Christ and I am in Christ. And that's why Jesus had such strong things to say about if you, if you, if you search the whole world for things, you're going to lose yourself. What is a profit of man to gain the whole world but lose himself? Jesus is speaking of identity there. Not, he's not speaking of your actual life. He's not saying that you're going to die. He's saying that you're going to lose who you were created to be because you become whatever you behold. You turn into whatever you worship. And so whatever has the most power over you, whatever you love most, whatever your kingdom is, you'll give everything for it, and then you lose yourself in the process. The wrong king and the wrong kingdom makes us slaves and the best things about us can bring out the worst things inside us. So, what are you best at? What do you, when you meet someone, what do you hope they learn about you quickly? Um, what gives you strength to face today and peace when you think about tomorrow? Those are not bad things. Everything that just came to mind, if you're doing that little exercise with me, it's not a bad thing. It's actually probably one of the best things about you. And it's many times a gift God gave you. But there's a difference between worshiping the giver and worshiping the gift. And when we worship the best things about us, it's something that actually will hold us back from being a disciple. One of my favorite examples, I've shared this many times here, but there's new people, so I'll share it again. One of my favorite examples is from the 1924 Summer Olympics, the movie Chariots of Fire, you know, well-known movie about two-track uh, athletes. Harold Abrahams, who ran for England, he ran the 100-meter race, and then Eric Little, who was from Scotland, who ran the 400-meter race, and um, both of them were great. Both of them won the gold medal that year. And as they were preparing for the Olympics, the media asked both of them the same question. Why do you run? What makes you run? What compels you to run? What motivates you to run? And Harold Abrahams, who ran the 100 meter, he was from England, and I don't think he was a believer. He said, I run because when that starter gun goes off, when the pistol goes off, I have 10, 10 he called it 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence on earth. 10 lonely seconds to prove that I belong here. That's what it means to make the best your God. I'm a great runner, and I know who I am, and I have value and worth because I'm a great runner. Well, what happens when you can't run anymore? What happens when you lose a race? There's no freedom in that. There's no flourishing in that. We leave the best behind us so that we can be in free in Christ. Well, they asked the same question to Eric Little, who was a devout Christian and eventually became a missionary to China. Eric Little said, I run because God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I love that. I, I remember first time I read that, I, th I thought about my work, my life. I thought, why do I preach? Do I preach because I have 30 minutes, 30 lonely <laughs> minutes to prove my worth to you, to myself? 30 minutes to justify my existence. That's a real motivation sometimes to get up and preach. Why do you go to work? Why do you play sports? Why do you do the things? Is it because you're always trying to desperately justify your, or I preach because God made me a preacher, and when I preach, I can feel his pleasure. It's the difference between worshiping the gift and worshiping the giver. All right, 
So leave the worst of you, leave the best of you. And then lastly, I'm going to have Antonia come up, leave the rest of you. There's a saying that I've often heard that Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. <laughs> he's either Lord, and it's radical, and it's extreme, and it's hard to hear, but the cost of discipleship is real. To follow Jesus is not cheap. To follow Jesus is not convenient. And to follow Jesus is not comfortable. So if you're in for cheap, comfortable, and convenient, you're following the wrong person. Don't forget how his life ended. He went to a cross. There's nothing cheap, costless, or comfortable about following him. Being a disciple is dying to self and living to Christ. In fact, in two weeks, we're going to have a water baptism service. And if you've never been water baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, this is not something you do to earn your salvation, of course. This is something you do to celebrate your salvation. Or maybe you were water baptized years ago, but it didn't mean much to you. And you're like, this means so much more to me now. It's okay. You can get water baptized again. Maybe you were sprinkled as a child. That's fine. But this is not that. These are two different things. This is you as an adult saying, this is my faith and I want to go public with my faith. Sign up. Water baptism. When we put them under the water, and if you're new to the church, there's actually a tank right back there. When we put them under the water, it signifies that they are dying to themselves, identifying with the, the death of Christ upon the cross. And as they come back out of the water, it's the new life that they now, they've died to self and they live to Christ. That's what it means to leave behind the rest of you, that every single corner of your heart belongs to Jesus, your Lord. One of the commentaries said, we won't all be leaving the fishing profession to be apostles or to be killed for our faith. I know that. But I also know this. When Christ calls you to repent and follow him, you better, be ex you better expect to be, listen to this phrase, disrupted from your ordinary life. Has Jesus disrupted you from your ordinary life? You better expect a sword to sever relationships, pierce your bank account, cut off sins that easily entangle you. You better expect such changes and many more. Some things are not the worst of us. They're not gross sin. Some things are not the best of us. They're not false identities. Sometimes there are things that just slow us down. It's the rest of us. And I, I want to real quick say two, there's two categories I think these things fall into. And the first thing is this, comfort zones. Some of you got to leave behind your comfort zone. No one did anything for the kingdom and the scriptures while they were comfortable. Nobody stayed comfortable and did something remarkable and memorable for the kingdom. Sometimes we have comfort zones when it comes to what we're willing to sacrifice, comfort zones when it comes to who we're willing to talk to and have relationships to, comfort zones even when it comes to Sunday mornings. This is when I like to arrive, this is where I like to sit, this is who I like to, who I like to talk to, and this is how quickly I like to get out of here. Some of us have to leave behind the comfort zone of our Sunday morning rhythms, or maybe some of you have been involved in ministries, but you've been in the same ministry for 20 years and it's comfortable for you. Maybe the Lord's saying, step out, serve somewhere else additionally. Get out of your comfort zone. Find a place to serve. Some of us, our schedules are comfortable to us, and the Lord is saying, you got to give up your schedule so that you can live on mission and serve your neighbors and love your community and make disciples. The second thing that I think we have to be willing to leave behind that fits in this category is our same old excuses. Some of us have been making the same excuses for ourselves for decades. It's just who I am. It's just how I was raised. It's just my personality. I'm just a truth teller. You're just going to have to deal with the mess. Uh, or I'm just always, I'm, I'm, I'm just not organized. I'm just not on time. I'm just not, we, uh, this is just, I'm, I'm, I'm this ethnicity. I'm this, this is the way we are, don't you know? And I realize all those things shape who we are. But part of growing up is saying, I'm not going to make the same old excuses over and over and over. I'm going to leave them behind. 
Some things are not sin. They're not the worst of us. Some things are not counterfeit kingdoms. They're not the best of us. Some things just slow us down. Hebrews chapter 12. I didn't know that that Melissa was reading this verse this morning, but this is where we're finishing. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Years ago, a pastor from Minnesota pointed something out to me that I had never noticed in this passage, that there is sin, but then there's a category that doesn't, is not considered sin. It's simply, let us lay aside every weight and sin. So there's sin that clings closely to us, but then there are things that are not sin, but they are weights that slow us down. And this pastor said, if you're a disciple, stop asking the question, is it sin or not, to determine whether or not you should participate and do something and be involved. Stop asking that question. Start asking this question. Does it help me run? Does it help me run? Will it help me follow Jesus with more passion? How do we leave? Verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right-hand side uh, of the throne of God. How do we leave? We leave by looking at Jesus, what he's done. It changes the way we live. Here we are, Sunday, September 11th. Many of us woke up this morning thinking about where we were on that day, right? I remember in the days after the attack, reading in the newspapers the stories of people who were in the buildings when they collapsed or when they were struck and they lived. And I remember one of the persons that they interviewed saying, when you know you should be dead, it changes the way you live. That is the testimony of every Christian. I know I should be dead in my sin. I have done nothing to earn God's grace, but I'm alive in Christ. And if that's true, it better change the way that we live. Our hope is in Jesus. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And where do we see his kindness? At the cross. He left heaven to come to earth, to go to the cross, to die in our place. See, our greatest hope this morning is not in our ability to leave everything to have Jesus. We're gonna struggle with that our entire lives, okay? Our hope is not in our ability to leave everything to have Jesus. Our hope is in the certainty that Jesus left everything to have us. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadows of death, on them a light has dawned. Not from them, but on them. Jesus, our hope. He left everything so that we can leave everything to follow him. Let's pray.